Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John, and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Ray Fadlovich. Ray is a master's student in the Quantitative Fisheries and Aquatic Ecology Lab at Utah State University, whose passion for science and love of water led her to a career in fisheries. She is especially interested in utilizing quantitative models to support native fisheries and aquatic invasive species management. Her current research examines the distribution of juvenile common carp in Utah Lake and evaluates the impact of alternative removal gears. All right, welcome to the podcast, Ray. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So you talked about in your bio about how your love of water kind of led you to fisheries. So where did that love of water stem from? Yeah, so I'm originally from San Diego and I grew up in Mission Bay, so really close to the beach and the bay and spent a lot of time in the water. I swam a lot and swam competitively through high school. And when I lived in San Diego in the summers, I'd be at the beach pretty much every day and just loved the ocean and loved kind of all aspects of aquatic life and also spent a lot of time at the San Diego Zoo and at SeaWorld, which kind of expanded my interests from just the physical water to the animals uh, that are inside of the water. Yeah. I have to ask this as a landlocked person who always loved the ocean, you did your uh, undergrad degree in Arizona. So why did you choose to go inland for with your interest of aquatics and water rather than staying in a coastal area? I actually moved from Washington to go to Arizona State. So before high school, my family moved up to Washington for my dad's job. And I went to high school in Southwest Washington. And for college, I ended up getting a full scholarship to Arizona State. And it was a lot cheaper for me to end up going to Arizona State for free than it would be um, to end up going to a school like University of Washington that Mm -hmm. isn't super good at giving in-state students uh, merit scholarships. So I I decided to go the affordable option and landlock myself for a little while. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of what I did. I was uh, growing up in Montana. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to college on an ocean. I was like, oh, it's really cheap to just go to Missoula. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to do that instead. (laughs) I know. I was like looking at Florida too. And I like was like between Arizona or Florida. And there was just like logistically like moving across the country moving inland but staying out west seemed mm-hmm. more appealing than moving to the east coast yeah at least when I was 17 that's the decision I made <laughs> yeah for sure well it seems like it worked out pretty well for you so I was looking through your CV I had a time to find questions and I noticed that you've worked both with amphibians and fish so what tilted your interest towards fisheries for grad school yeah so I worked with amphibians, um, especially during undergrad. I worked in an amphibian research lab and was an undergraduate technician in that lab doing some amphibian disease work. And I really enjoyed that. We talked about Arizona being landlocked. There's not a ton of fish opportunities at ASU's campus that I was at. ASU has multiple campuses throughout the Phoenix metro area. And a lot of the they split up their degrees by location. And so 
a lot of the natural history programs weren't at the campus that my biology degree was at. And so as far as labs on the same campus where I lived and went to classes, uh, the amphibian stuff most closely aligned with what I wanted to do and was happy to have me. So I (laughs) did that for a few years. But I also, during undergrad, was lucky enough to get an internship working at Arizona Game and Fish, working with native fish and doing a lot of native and invasive species work. So while I was doing amphibian stuff, I kind of started both of them at the same time, I guess. (laughs) I really liked both jobs from a field work perspective. And Oh, there's some there's a lot of overlap right you could get some of these jobs that as far as your day-to-day tasks looks really similar whether it's an amphibian job or a fish job and then of course there's parts of them or jobs that aren't going to look at all alike mm-hmm. <laughs> but I knew that as I kind of moved out of doing tech jobs and, and just field work I wanted to do stuff that was more data intensive and there's a lot more opportunities I found in the fish side of things than in amphibian research, especially when you're in the desert or the Southwest, um, mm-hmm. not as many amphibians. But moving forward in my career, I really like quantitative stuff and getting to work with larger data sets. And as far as large data sets go, there's a lot more longstanding monitoring programs for a lot of fisheries work and a lot of funding that allows for the kind of kind of in-depth quantitative analysis and these larger scale modeling questions in that fisheries realm. So starting grad school, I definitely kind of knew that it'd be more fish based than it would be amphibian. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So Is most of your field experience in desert systems then since undergrad or have you worked in other ecosystems as well? I did a lot of work in desert ecosystems. I, working with Arizona Game Fish, got to go throughout all of Arizona, which isn't just a desert, but a lot of it is. (laughs) I also got to work in Glacier National Park up in Montana, and that was a great experience and certainly not desert. (laughs) I also have done some work in Portland and on the Columbia River. So also not desert, but most of my experience has been in the Southwest. Yeah. The desert's so cool. I mean, it's just a very wild extreme system and it's always so amazing that any kind of aquatic life can hack it there. (laughs) Yeah. When you tell people you, you know, work with fish or in in aquatics and then you say that you, you know, live or work in a desert or Arizona, they're sometimes a little uh, confused yeah. as to why that is a choice you made. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Of those tech jobs, which one would you say was your favorite leading up to grad school? This, I'm bad at, I'm bad at picking favorites. <laughs> so I really enjoyed one of my amphibian tech jobs would probably be my favorite like field-based tech position I had. And that was when I worked in Glacier National Park. And I was working for a master's student out of the University of Montana. And it's hard to compete with getting to work in Glacier and having your job be hiking all around the park and going into wetlands and catching frogs and swabbing them and calling that a day. Um, (laughs) Her project was uh, having us go into beaver and non-beaver wetlands throughout the park and capturing a couple of species of amphibians and testing them for 
different fungal disease. And so that was a lot of fun. And working for a master's student as a tech and now being a master's student who has my own technicians, I really look to that field experience to kind of help me figure out how to interact with my technicians. And I was super lucky. My boss that summer, Leah, is an amazing person. And she's so just like, she was like the perfect person to work for because she had such a good attitude and like working one-on-one with someone can be really stressful. But when I started, she and I didn't have housing yet. She literally invited me into her home to like stay on her couch while we started. And then we even like the first couple of weeks thought it would be a good idea to share a tent together. We quickly uh, backpedaled on that decision. <laughs> <laughs> but just working with someone who was just like so talented at what she was doing and, and so driven and also like so good at just figuring out how to work as a pair was such a good experience. And I'm really glad that I did that before I started my own master's research because just the field logistics of a master's project mm-hmm. versus like long-standing monitoring at a state agency is is so logistically different. so different. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very thankful for that field experience. Yeah. But it's like hard to compete. I did a summer fellowship at the Cooperative Institute for Great Lakes Research at the University of Michigan. And that's where I first figured out that I wasn't terrible at uh, quantitative stuff. <laughs> and I was working on this full-scale ecosystem model of Lake Erie. And I was super overwhelmed when I started. And I thought I would work like field tech jobs until I went to grad school. But I was in a like foot cast for what turned out to be seven months. And so I was not going to work a field position that summer mm-hmm. and kind of panicked and found this opportunity not knowing if I'd horrendously fail at trying to work on this large model that had been worked on by a lot of different fellows before me. And throughout that job, I realized that I actually really like working (laughs) with quantitative stuff. And I really like working on these like large scale management questions. And so that really shaped my like path going forward. So it's hard not to call that one my favorite. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like all the different jobs I've had, I learned so many like different and like such a variety of lessons from each specific experience. So I can see the yeah, the value so in each situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like pick just one, but they're yeah. all helpful. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm always torn. I'm like, just tell me about your entire life up to this point. I'm like, that's that's gonna be a long podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Before we dive into your actual research at Utah State, can you tell me about your Fulbright experience in Malaysia? Because that just seems wild to me, like a very cool experience that people might want to hear about. (laughs) Yeah, so I ended up spending a year in Malaysia teaching English at a secondary school. And that was part of the Fulbright program that has what they call English teaching assistants or ETAs in countries all across the globe. And the Fulbright program is a U.S. cultural exchange program, and it's run by the Department of State. And in Malaysia, they have a pretty large English teaching assistant program where there are 100 U.S. recent graduates who go and teach English for a year all across the country. And I was really drawn to this program because the cooperation like between the U.S. government and the Malaysian government and the type of teaching they wanted us to be doing in the classrooms. I actually have 
both a biology undergrad and an English undergrad degree. And so I kind of wanted to put that to use. And one really interesting thing about the Malaysian education system is that for some of their higher performing students in high school, they actually do their science curriculum in English. And so not only did I get to work in some English classrooms, I also got to help teach some of the biology classes at my school. And that was a really cool experience. I also got placed in a really cool part of Malaysia. So Malaysia is both a peninsula that comes off of Thailand, and that's where Kuala Lumpur, the capital, is. And it also has two states that are on the island of Borneo. And Borneo is the third largest island in the world. And it's shared between those two Malaysian states, part of Indonesia, which is actually where they're moving the Indonesian capital and the country of Brunei. And so Malaysian Borneo is extremely diverse, both in terms of biodiversity, as well as cultural and indigenous peoples. And it's a really awesome place to have gotten to live for a year. Um, I got to see so many cool animals. Like there is a, a beautiful beach right next to my house. Um, There's also like tons of proboscis monkeys and in other parts of the island, tons of other biodiversity and old growth rainforests, which was incredible. And I got to spend my time teaching at this secondary school. So the equivalent of our high school. And there were some kind of logistical issues with the way the Fulbright program was implemented in Malaysia. And a lot of times the program goals maybe didn't align with what I thought I was going to be doing or with what the like host school wanted me to be doing. So it was a really good kind of lesson in balancing different ideas and balancing different goals and values and trying to find something that I felt good about doing and that still checked off kind of the boxes for the people who are supporting me being there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of found it challenging to actually work in the classrooms because a lot of times the teachers themselves just had it covered and didn't feel that like me standing there next to them would really be useful, which is very valid. They went to school to do that, what they're doing. And so I spent a lot of my time kind of doing outside of class activities and I got to host some overnight science camps for some of my students, as well as my absolute favorite thing I got to do. I got to run a weekly cooking class for my students and I worked really hard to like source all my ingredients locally at what we would consider to be our farmer's market. Um, It comes through town like once a week where I was living and I would get all my food for all my weekly cooking classes and then put on a class for like 50 like mostly 12 to 14 year old kids um and just trying not to let anyone cut themselves or get burnt Um, (laughs) I had a lot of fun and really like I love cooking and I love cooking with other people and it was so cool to see how how important of a tool that is for uh, cultural exchange and really just gain such a appreciation for other ways of doing life and the craziest part I think was like with my cooking classes was all my students were jealous of the large grocery stores we have in the U.S. and like the Mm -hmm. the homogenization of our our food in in the U.S. whereas I was so thrilled to be able to buy local produce that was like coming from someone's backyard and like 
all I ate was like raised or grown within the area I was living and I was so stoked and they were all like oh wait but we can't wait until like a big grocery store comes to town and I was like my friends all want it the way that you guys actually have it right now like I am so jealous of of your local food system and I I totally understand that there's a ton of privilege that comes from the the way we like manage food um in the U.S. but there's also a lot of things that are lost in in it and so that was kind of a crazy like just seeing like it's always greener on the other side or whatever yeah for sure Oh, I have so many follow-up questions that I didn't think I was going to be asking. Oh, go right okay, ahead. Okay, <laughs> first, so did you start out in a biology degree and then decide to add the English on later, vice versa, or why did you get that Bachelor's yeah. of Arts in English? I started with my biology degree, like that's what I, at ASU, you declare, like, mm-hmm. when you show up or before, but um, I think I added my English degree either at the end of my freshman year or at the beginning of my sophomore year. And I I knew going in to getting my degree that I wanted to add on something that was more humanities based. Um, partially, I felt like I was kind of turning my Arizona State experience kind of into more of like a liberal arts experience than the biology program was set up mm-hmm. to be. I think that especially wanting to work in conservation, I feel that it's just as important to understand kind of those cultural and and Mm values-based sides of decisions as it is to think about the hard science aspect of them. And so I ended up really liking a lot of the English classes I took and especially liking the professors I was working with. And so I decided to declare English and I'm really glad I did. It definitely opened the door for opportunities I'd like wouldn't have thought it would and even now Mm -hmm. I just like I don't feel as much pressure when I'm writing or it's not as hard for me to kind of start writing something as it was when I started my English degree so Mm -hmm. it turns out that's a big grad school skill yeah I was (laughs) was gonna ask if you found that to be pretty helpful for grad school because writing is probably one of my biggest struggles that I found so far and I was curious if you think that better prepared you I, I definitely do think that it has prepared me a lot. I'm not saying that anyone listening should go out and get an English right. degree to make grad school a little bit easier, but I I do think, yeah, for, for writing my proposal, it, it made things a lot easier, and I feel like I have some of those rhetorical skills, so when I'm revising my stuff, I use a lot of those tools that you don't really think about they they don't jump out to you when you're reading a page but they leave you with a, a different essence of what's been written yeah. <laughs> so it definitely is helpful and also helpful when I'm writing stuff like cover letters or applications I feel like I got a lot of practice writing those style of, of like personal narratives and so as far as marketing myself I think it's also been super helpful yeah that's cool it's well, it's especially funny, too, because I was just listening to our last week's episode, their new co-host, Reed Sutherland, and she also has a bachelor's in English and in <laughs> biology. And I was like, did I miss out on something? Yeah. <laughs> it's the secret ticket, apparently. Seriously. <laughs> I think also like the an English degree is flexible enough because my degree is like in English literature. And it's I mean, I do love to read, but it's not that I was like so passionate about 
literature itself as opposed to kind of the skills that it could give me and some of those cultural competencies Mm -hmm. which are limited by what's in English as opposed to in another language but um I think that at least at ASU what classes you took for an English degree is like take these four classes and then anything else that starts with the English prefix go ahead and take and so I was taking things that were really more like cultural competency classes. It was a lot more flexible. It gave me flexibility to kind of study a broad range of humanities stuff, which Mm -hmm. is cool. (laughs) For those of us who don't have a bachelor's in English, could you just define what you mean by uh, cultural competency? It's knowing both your culture and being, it's like being able to not steamroll other cultures you work with. (laughs) Right. So the way I think that my English degree helped me become culturally competent is both a lot through an education in colonial and post-colonial literature Mm -hmm. and understanding how my worldview is so shaped by having been part of a culture that has decided to what's the word um has decided to colonize so much of the world and how historically other cultures have just been swallowed into that and kind of taken as oddities or curiosities Mm -hmm. and how that's not something I want to do going forward in my work I don't think that that's a model anyone should be following yeah (laughs) and so understanding that other cultures are not what they are as viewed through the colonial lens and so understanding that other people's worldviews are just as valid as my own and other people's cultural histories are just as important and just as relevant and should be celebrated and not just blown by and Mm -hmm. as far as like conservation work I think of that as not allowing my perception of how a system should be managed be the only way that you approach it it's understanding what the people who live in or are impacted by those systems how they value those resources and how they want to see those things being managed yeah Ah, the value of interdisciplinarity. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Oh, that was, I feel like that ended up being a really good lead in (laughs) grad school. (laughs) Can you talk about uh, what you're currently researching at Utah State? My current work is looking at invasive common carp in Utah Lake. And Utah Lake is a very large lake in Utah County, Utah. So it's south of Salt Lake City. And it's very large. It's like 150 square miles. And it's also very, very shallow. It has an average depth of eight feet about when it's at full pool. And these different physical factors, both its super large size and it being very shallow, definitely impacts the way that you can manage uh, this lake. And the common carp in Utah Lake have been there for a while. And by the early 2000s, carp made up over 90% of the fish biomass in the lake. And carp are prolific invasive species all over the world. And they're really known for being able to kind of just tear up the habitat that they find themselves in. And they just will change the presence of macrophytes. They'll destroy a lot of that vegetation and they can really make the water a lot more turbid because they're just kicking up the bottom as they swim along it to Mm -hmm. feed and 
these changes in Utah Lake, along with some increased nutrient loading and, and other factors that aren't explicitly carp related, have led to negative impacts on the June sucker, which was previously endangered and it's currently listed as threatened. And so because of the impacts that the carp have on the June sucker, the June sucker recovery implementation program began a lakewide carp removal effort in 2009. And I'm very thankful for the June sucker recovery implementation program, both for starting such a large scale invasive species project. I think invasive species work is very interesting and, and cool, but also want to thank them for funding uh, my project and my research. And so the removal effort on Utah Lake has been going on for a while now, and they use commercial fishers and commercial boat seines in order to remove the carp from the lake. And they are out there all the time during fishing season. And the removal efforts have been able to remove a lot of fish. I think it's around 14,000 tons of fish that they've taken out of the lake since 2009. And when they started the removal efforts, they set a target to get the lake to a 70% a reduction from what it was mm -hmm. before they started the removal efforts. And models of the carp population show that by 2017, that target reduction was probably hit. However, since that time when it was hit, the carp population has increased again, and it's going up. And these models suggest that with the current removal effort, even if you fish way more, you you know have them fishing five times, 10 times as hard, if you're using these same gears, the removal effort isn't going to be able to suppress the carp population long-term. Mm -hmm. And that's where my research specifically comes in, is I'm looking at finding ways to target those sub-adult carp because the current efforts really are most effective at catching carp that are like over 400 millimeters long. And the vast majority of fish they pull out of the system are probably age five, six, or seven plus. And so if you're allowing fish who reach maturity around age two or three to be in the system for a few years before they're removed, you're seeing them be able to spawn and reproduce. And, and even if you remove that one fish, once it's had, you know, a bunch of babies, it's not the most effective removal strategy. Mm -hmm. And so my work is looking for alternative mechanical removal methods that could target that kind of 400 or smaller size of carp in the lake. And I've implemented a lake-wide sampling effort and I go out every other month during the fishing season. And I set out at 16 sites around the lake, I set out trap nets, mini trap nets, because you cannot get a full trap net in that lake. You, I set out gill nets, but because of the impact a gill net could have on June sucker, we only set mm -hmm. them out for 20 minutes. And then we also use hand or boat pulled beach seines. However, the seines that I use are not as large as the seines the commercial fishermen use. Um, and so I've been doing that. I ha have a full field season and a half done and I have another half left this coming summer, but have not 
pot, maybe as many uh, sub-adult carp as would happen in an ideal universe, which is pretty classic master's project, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) And so probably not going to be able to, it's probably not going to be any of the gears I have been testing that are going to solve our Utah Lake carp conundrum. However, my other chapter is focusing on doing some simulation modeling. So looking at hypothetical gears and the selectivity of those gears. So what size or age of fish a gear would target and seeing how changing that selectivity from what the current selectivity of the gear is and seeing how changing it will impact the carp population down the road mm-hmm. using age-based population models. And so that's kind of what I'm in the in the depths of doing yeah. right now in the off season. And so hopefully that will help us see basically if we need just a small tweak and, you know, um, kind of help point our mechanical removal efforts in the right direction going forward. Cool. So the, the simulation modeling is essentially like pretending that you can make the gear more effective. How, how much easier is it going to be to suppress? Is that kind of, yeah. So if the current gear right now is most effective at catching age, you know, five, six, and seven, we'll say, and it doesn't catch age zero, one, and two. Mm-hmm. If we change the gear so it's really effective at catching three, four, five, six, seven age right. fish, how will that affect the system? Or like how how far do you have to shift what it catches until we see it really help reach those management goals in Utah Lake? Or is it, you know, is it a modification of the current gear, kind of sliding that current shape of selectivity Mm -hmm. that we see and nudging it to select for younger fish or would a completely different type of gear you know with a very different shape that only targets middle-aged fish or only there's a lot of possibilities um so but implementing those uh possibilities in utah lake is is another question right right (laughs) (laughs) the beauty and the curse of simulation modeling is there's so many like little like oh what if we try this what yeah <laughs> what if we do this it's like uh that doesn't exist like yeah, oh yeah, for sure. well it could <laughs> <laughs> and especially because a lot of large-scale fishing gears are designed to be used in commercial fisheries where it's ideal to only catch fish after they've reached right. a size where they're really not they've already spawned they've already reproduced and taking out that older individual isn't going to impact the population as a whole and so when it comes to removing a lot of fish from a system it's it's been fine-tuned to really remove uh, the big fish (laughs) right okay I think I do have to ask it because I feel like um I know you've had to answer this in so many conferences and I'm just guessing that people out there are wondering why you're not using electrofishing so can you explain some of the logistic issues with electrofishing on Utah Lake for people who are not familiar (laughs) with the system yeah, so you are correct. I get this question very frequently, even with people who uh, somewhat are familiar with the system. And Utah Lake is incredibly shallow, and it's also fairly conductive. And so, like, kind of two parts, because the water itself is so conductive, it's really at that limit for a standard electrofishing unit. And if you muck up the water at all it often tips it over the edge and 
I've tried using a backpack shocker just to see how it goes mm-hmm. and it just loves to shut off every two seconds yeah. and the state agencies have also tried boat electrofishing mm-hmm. with no good results right. <laughs> and the other logistical issue especially these past couple years with the water levels being so low everywhere but in Utah Lake I often can't even get my current boat like within a mile of shore because Utah Lake like it's really, really just it's a very gradually sloped lake um it's got like eight feet average depth so when we are out there trying to get into some of this shoreline habitat to try and target these smaller fish uh we really are not able to get any sort of floating right. watercraft there even even like a canoe you still cannot yeah. get it anywhere near shore to where it would be effective for that kind of shoreline mm-hmm. electrofishing that you see in work in other in, uh, in other right lake systems and having walked in parts of utah lake for helping you with your stuff <laughs> i can see where barge electrofishing is not feasible either yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very mucky and muddy yeah <laughs> Cool. So I just don't know that much about common carp myself. So is the like biology of those young carp ages pretty well understood of where they should be in the lake and it's just hard to access and that's why it's not working so well? Or is it like we still have questions about where these younger fish might be? So the as far as like the difference in where we would find these juvenile or sub-adult carp versus the adults there there's a lot i mean a lot of people study common carp it's a very common fish right. um, however a lot of what we know such as juvenile carp are typically found in these shoreline vegetated habitats in utah lake at low water there isn't shoreline vegetated habitat when the lake is fuller there's a lot of those kind of marshy really vegetated areas and in those years, it is probably a factor that they're there, but not accessible because you can't get a boat right. where they're hanging out. The couple of years that I've been sampling, the water's been so low that it's become disconnected from those shoreline macrophytes. And really all of the substrate is muddy, sandy, or rocky with, with pretty much no vegetation. And so we know that we see recruitment in f- subsequent years, even when there is low water. But if there's not that picture perfect habitat available, what mm-hmm. else might they be using? So that was also one of the goals of my lake wide sampling that I've been doing for my research. However, I haven't found tons of <laughs> age like two, three, four carp. Mm-hmm. I've found a lot of age zeros, which is is better than not finding yeah. any sub adult fish. But it's really an interesting question of where they're hiding and and it's been brought up a lot that that maybe they're choosing to hang out in some of the rivers that come in however the lake is huge Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fish there they're more likely they're they've got to be somewhere they might also be using these other habitats but those fish are somewhere and i have not found them right (laughs) 
moving away from your research a bit, one question I always like to ask is what are your hobbies and interests outside of science? Because I think it's easy to, especially as grad students, to get bogged down in our work and kind of forget we're people. And so it's always fun for me to hear what you like to do outside of modeling and catching carp. Yeah. So I, you know, do have interests outside of school as much as grad school uh, pulls me back to mm-hmm. <laughs> work a lot. But I, I do love to get outside still love the water so I love you know boating kayaking rafting all those things I go hiking a lot especially I live in Logan Utah right now and there's great access to trails and and really just it's very easy to find yourself on a trail where you're not running into hundreds of people on your daily hike which is super nice and being in northern Utah doing plenty of skiing this winter (laughs) but I also enjoy indoor activities I'm not always outside though I spend a lot of time outside. I do love to read. I currently have been really into reading the American Best Food Writing series. <laughs> and on that theme, I also really like to cook. So my reading and cooking interests like to overlap, I guess. But grad school does make cooking, at least I like to make a lot of things kind of from scratch or really elaborate stuff that doesn't happen as often with being in grad school. But I do love to cook and especially being able to cook and share it with with friends and other people. And I can't forget that I'm a crazy cat lady and I spend a lot of time with my cat, Bufo. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we've come to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview and we're down to the final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one, which I think is probably the hardest, is what is your favorite fish? Uh, yeah, this was hard for me. I... I'm not good at picking favorites and especially working with invasive species. I feel like calling common carp my favorite fish on my research is trying to effectively remove them is, is a little, uh, maybe not the vibe I'm going for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that I, I decided on humpback chub being my favorite fish. They are just really cool fish. I mean, I find just the ways that they've adapted to their environment in the Colorado River Basin, how they have these really impressive humps on their head (laughs) and how they're just such a beautiful fish when you pull them out of the water, especially if you get this kind of super humpback chub looking fish and they're, they've got this beautiful hump, they're basically scaleless and they're just like, so they look like, I don't know, fake, almost like a prop fish. And just getting to work with like a fish that it's so adapted to an environment and it's it's put so much work into adapting itself to this system and just seeing that evolutionary history when you look at the fish is really cool <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm so stoked you brought up a minnow exactly i guess carp minnows too sport fish focused yes. person yes so. exactly <laughs> No trout coming from me. Good, good. I feel like that's very hypocritical of me, but I'm <laughs> yeah. stoked. <to> have it. <laughs> okay, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Um, still bad with favorites, so <laughs> I had to think about this one. I think there's like a lot of you know little cool stuff that pops up when you're doing field work, and I, you know, immediately thought of like getting to snorkel in really cool places, like in Fossil Creek in Arizona, or. When I was working in Montana, we'd get the day off if we found moose in our wetland, like just these kind of weird field work moments. But I really think that my favorite 
memory was from this past year when I was out um, doing my field work for my master's with two technicians and both my technicians were women and I was like stoked to have I call it lady boat day and stoked to have a lady boat out on the lake and um, I have brought it up a couple other times with one of those texts when she's been working it's been lady boat day and she was like you know I don't think I've ever worked on a crew where there's not a woman other than myself she's like I don't think I've only ever been like the only woman on a crew and I was like shocked when she said that because I have been super lucky to have a ton of great female role models in my fisheries positions but I've often worked at in places where even though I have these really great female role models I often find myself on crews where I'm the only woman or or you're not actually working with the other woman who's mm-hmm. around and just the fact that my techs didn't even like think it was a thing that we're all women out on a boat doing fisheries research was like really encouraging I guess yeah. to see that they're just totally comfortable and then see this as a space where that's not like noteworthy is really uh yeah really a good I don't know it just it's hard to say because it's like it made me feel I was like what what do you mean like what do you mean you don't think this is cool <laughs> like what do you mean it's just another Tuesday for you but at the same time it's like that's great that this yeah. is just another day for you and I hope that going Continues. forward that energy can be replicated yeah for sure all right what is your dream job and location another hard question <laughs> I really like teaching and research is not far behind my love for teaching so I would love to be in a teaching or mentorship heavy position thinking about that might be in academia but I'm still in my master's still getting a master's so we have lots of career options open yeah. to me down the road I do like living in the west though i've i've spent most of my time out west and and do see myself staying somewhere in the west Mm -hmm. probably somewhere where i see the sun frequently right (laughs) throughout the year yeah very fair okay if money was not an issue what is one project you would like to work on more just you know easy small questions (laughs) casual (laughs) i my mind like instantly goes to something with water rights and if I had literally all the money in the world, being able to shuffle around how we manage water in ways that could kind of restore or replicate natural flow regimes, because a lot of endangered species work, at least in the West, is so uh, impacted by working in systems that don't look like what these fish were adapted to. And I think that if you had all the money in the world and could dedicate it to this project there still would be barriers to trying to make something like that feasible and so I guess it depends on if having all the money also uh allows you to have all the power and and cultural control of of how we want our water to be managed but I that's where my mind first went so yeah yeah for sure all right our last question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head what would it be so my first thought is that I should not be able to program something into everyone's <laughs> head. <laughs> Sounds dangerous, but that they I, could remember. 
I think that I, you know, if we get past the <laughs> right <laughs> things I feel about this, um, I think I just want people to be open to working with folks who have different backgrounds or identities than themselves, and that this is more than just allowing those people to kind of come into a system that already exists, and it really means we need to create spaces where these different ideas or different ways of doing things are encouraged instead of seen as being different than how we should be doing them. And just understanding that people who have a different identity than you or, or people who come from a different background or culture than you are going to move through the world differently and they're going to communicate differently, whether that's communicating their values or communicating their abilities. I find a lot of times other people communicate how they do things or how they think they can do things differently than I do. And knowing that how someone's communicating their values is going to be different than how you communicate your own and and being able to incorporate those different ideas into your the way you're working and, and the way you organize and, and run things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really good catching up and hearing about all of your work and getting to share it with our listeners. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how could they do that? Yeah, so my email is my name, ray.fadlovich at gmail.com. Awesome. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. Or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, be open to working with people with different backgrounds and identities. Mm-hmm.